from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Jonathan Small, Editor-in-Chief of Green Entrepreneur. And on the other line, I have my friend and colleague, Nick Gollin, who is the Editor-in-Chief of Marijuana Retail Report. Nick just did an interview with one Chris Crane that we are going to share with you in just a minute. Nick, tell us a little bit about about Chris. Yeah, so Chris is uh, kind of one of those uh, stories where he kind of grew up with the industry straight out of college, you know, started to uh, actually, I believe it was in college. He founded, uh, co-founded um, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which is one of the bigger advocacy groups in the cannabis space or in a general counterculture space. And then went on to found a couple other advocacy groups before finally launching his own company, which was Forefront Ventures which he's co-founder and president of right now, but still has that advocacy arm. Uh, He is co-chair for the NCIA, that's the National Cannabis Industry Association, uh, one of the larger lobby players uh, in the cannabis space, and just an all-around great guy, somebody that really has a pulse on the industry as a whole, both from an operator's perspective as well as a legislative perspective. So just one of those people that is really an interesting conversation to have if you ever get the chance. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Without further ado, we bring you Nick's conversation with Chris Crane. Sweet. Chris Crane, obviously one of the most recognizable figures in cannabis today. Just to kind of give a little bit of background for you, in 1998, I mean, Chris co-founded and then served as the executive director for Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which as many of you probably know, is a global leader in drug reform advocacy. I believe you also worked with Normal around that time, which is another prolific advocacy group. You also helped go on to be the director for Can Be, helping push forward more advocacy. And now, uh, present day, you serve as the vice chair for the NCIA, as well as president and founder for Forefront Ventures, which is a leading multi-state investment and operation firm currently running mission dispensaries, operating out of Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania, as well as Brightleaf Development, which oversees the cultivation and production for Forefront, operating out of the Washington State area, and Pure Ratios, which is leading hemp extract line. Jeez, Chris, is there anything, honestly, you don't do anymore? (laughs) I'm sure there is. (laughs) uh, I appreciate the extensive extensive recap of my resume there. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, you have, honestly, one of the most impressive resumes in cannabis. Obviously, somebody that's been in the industry since you were young. I have to ask, most people are interested in origin stories. What really made you want to originally get involved in the industry in the first place? So it's sort of two things, right? There, there was my getting involved in the industry, then there was getting involved in the movement, which we, which came first, right? When I, when I first got involved in this issue and really it was 1996, 97, as a college student, like, there was no industry at that time. I got involved with what was originally my campus normal chapter at American University, which became a Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter when, when, we, when we started that organization in 98. And, you know, a big part of my motivation was you know, by that point, I, I, I discovered that I, I enjoyed cannabis, and I didn't think it was fair that anybody be arrested for to face criminal penalties. But really, it was something that I had thought about and looked at quite a bit, going all the way back to you know when I was quite young. My father, who passed away when I was eight, uh, used medical cannabis in the last years of his life, and it was extremely helpful helpful for him in, in, in maintaining his quality of life. 
So, you know, as I got older and we started going through the, you know, the drug education at 80s and 90s and being told that marijuana does all these horrible things, it just never rang true. And so I always questioned that. And that kind of drove me to get involved in, in policy reform. I made the move to the industry in 2009 uh, when the industry was, was very, very small. And that really came from having seen some of those really early model dispensaries, predominantly in Northern California, right, places like Harborside Health Center, Berkeley Patients Group, Peace and Medicine, and seeing that what, the, what these places were doing while operating in, in what was very much an act of civil disobedience at the time, because these were arguably not even fully legal under state law, let alone federal law, was really demonstrating to the public what a post-prohibition world can look like. And it dawned on me that the industry was going to have as much of an impact on moving this issue forward and helping bring about an end to prohibition as the work that we'd been doing in the nonprofit advocacy world by simply going out there and demonstrating to the public that cannabis can be distributed in a way that is professional, that's normalized, that's community-oriented, and that you know, nobody's going to look at one of these businesses and go, that's something that should be illegal. Right? In addition to bringing in all sorts of people who see an opportunity in the cannabis industry who then become supporters of policy reform, if for no other reason than because you have to legalize in more states in order to open up more market opportunities. But and these are folks that never would have been donors to Normal or the Marijuana Policy Project right, or some of the advocacy organizations were it not for the business opportunities. So I, I saw and still do see the industry as a major, major piece in, in ultimately ending our, our disastrous experiment with, with cannabis prohibition. And we've kind of seen that over the past, obviously, the past couple of years, most recently in the 2020 election cycle, we're seeing a lot more states come online. When you're looking at the totality of the industry, what is the most interesting market to you right now or most interesting region? Is it here in the U.S.? Is there a specific region here? Or are you looking more on the international markets when you're looking at the future? It's both, frankly. I mean, there's blue sky everywhere you look. You know, I think in the U.S., I don't think I could pick one state as saying it's the most interesting state right now. I think there's a lot of places that are that are interesting in the U.S. And, and a lot more that are about to come online. I mean, I think the thing to watch in the United States right now is, is what's going to happen federally and what happens to the industry when federal prohibition does end and when those, you know, those walls of interstate commerce, international commerce come down. But I will say, you know, in the last couple of years, I've been increasingly more interested in what's happening internationally. I'm involved in a project actually with my, my college roommate. We have a license in, uh, in the country of North Macedonia, which we think is really well positioned to be a natural low-cost producer country for the EU market. And if you, if you look at what's happening globally, you know, outside of Canada and you know, maybe places like Colombia to a lesser extent, like, there isn't a whole lot of activity yet internationally, but there's a lot of interest. Right? The European medical cannabis markets are really, really tiny right now, but there's a lot of interest in in businesses getting involved in those markets. I think as the U.S. continues to pass more and more uh, reform, you're going to see Europe follow suit. You're starting to see some countries in Asia do the same. And so I'm, I'm interested in what's going on globally. It feels a lot more like where we were in the U.S. 10 years ago when it was all very, very new and very early, but you could see the blue sky ahead. And that's kind of the time in the sort of life cycle, the development of this that is that's sort of most interesting to me. And we've seen, well, like, looking at the European market and specifically, say, the traditional markets in Holland, where they're starting to institute track and trace programs so that brands can start doing their own growing. But we've also seen a regressive shift, say, in the market in Amsterdam, where coffee shops are being shut down. When you're looking at, say, the European market, do you see that as a growing market or do you see that as a receding market when it comes to, say, recreational cannabis? 
Oh, I think it's very much a growing market, it, it, although it hasn't even, I mean, it's barely even scratched the service, uh, surface at this point in terms of uh, its growth potential. You talk about Amsterdam but and the Netherlands, but the Netherlands been, has been sort of an anomaly in Europe for decades where they've had, you know, they've had this coffee shop system, but it's never actually been regulated. It's just been, uh, quote unquote, tolerated, where there's basically an agreement the police aren't going to go after coffee shop proprietors as long as they stick to some, you know, some basic sets of rules around you know, loitering and not being involved in organized crime and whatnot, but it's never been a, a legal regulated industry. Where the legal regulated industry is in Europe predominantly right now is, is a medical market, much like the early industries in the U.S., only it's a very different kind of medical market than we have in the United States because it's legal at the national level. And so a patient has to get a prescription from a doctor for a specific brand of cannabis, a specific amount, specific strain, right? It's not like here where you get a recommendation from a doctor for medical cannabis, and you go to a dispensary, and you could buy whatever kinds of cannabis products you want. They use a much more traditional prescription pharmaceutical model. This would be the equivalent, for example, what we do here would be the equivalent of like your doctor giving you a prescription for opioids, and you go to a pharmacy and say, well, I'd like some Percocet and some Oxy, and maybe I'll try a little <laughs> fentanyl patch. Right? Like, that's not how this works. So it's meant that the development of the medical markets in Europe has been very, very slow. Because the doctors don't really understand it. They don't know the differences between, you know, Bedrican strains and Tilray strains. They don't understand how to prescribe it. Uh, the pharmacists don't really understand it yet. And so what that's led to is that in most European countries, there's only a few hundred patients in each of these countries. E even in Germany, which is by far the biggest European medical market, you've only got something like 120,000 patients in a country of 80 plus million people. So these are still small, but I think over the next few years, we're going to start to see countries in Europe legalized for adult use. In fact, the country of North Macedonia, which is not an EU country yet, it is an EU candidate country, is making a very strong push to legalize for all adults as a way of, of boosting tourism to the country and in, in the country and in, in the region. And I think it really takes one country in Europe, particularly if it is an EU country, which North Macedonia is not, that will sort of set the dominoes in motion. And there's a few countries that have been sort of talking about this, considering it. I, I look at places like Germany, the Czech Republic, Portugal, as some of the most likely countries that would, that would go first with legalization. But I think it's coming. I think it's coming in the next few years. And that opens up, once the EU opens up, I mean, you're looking at a market of 650 million people, bigger, bigger population-wise than the United States. And there's very, very little business activity there right now. Looking back at the United States for business activity, I mean, especially in the adult recreational states during the pandemic, we've seen a spike in sales in your state, especially Illinois, obviously just put out their numbers recently, reaching $1 billion in sales during the 2020 season. Do you kind of expect that trend to continue even as, say, the pandemic winds down? Or do you see that as kind of like a, a rising scale on a continual level? It's hard to say how much it's going to continue to increase, but, I, but I, I think there's no doubt it will continue to increase. And for a number of reasons. I mean, one, I don't think that there is, other than maybe Colorado at this point, I don't think there really is a fully mature adult use market yet in the United States. Right? It takes years for markets to mature to the point where there's, there's you know, adequate supply to bring pricing down, where people who have been just getting their products on the illicit market feel the need to transition to the legal market. Part of this is that that just takes time. I think that, uh, the representative, or actually Senator Heather, Heather Staines here in Illinois likes to say it takes time for people to break up with the drug dealer. And that's true, right? Because the reality is for most people, like despite the stereotype of illicit, shady street corner drug deals, like that's not how most people get their, their cannabis. Most people like their cannabis dealers. It's not an unpleasant experience. And so 
unless you could provide better products at a better price point with more variety in the stores, there isn't that much motivation for people to switch over from the illicit market. It takes time to do that. Um, I think we're seeing that, you know, you're certainly seeing that play out in California over a very long period of time. So there's lots of room for growth, even in the states and almost every state where it's been legal so far. And then, of course, you know, we're only legal in 15 states. Not all of them have even implemented their programs yet. So there's a lot more room to grow to add new markets. And then, of course, once the walls of uh, interstate commerce come down and even international commerce come down, you're going to see economies of scale that don't currently exist in the industry where people will be able to produce or companies will be able to produce on a scale that is not possible right now when you're confined to the borders of your, you know, your single state. And that will, you know, that will bring pricing down even further, make the market more accessible to even more Americans. So I think there's really, there's sort of nothing but growth ahead. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's John Small from Green Entrepreneur. And I have a question for you. What would you do as a small business owner, if you had an extra 15 hours a week to really focus on your business and not all that minutia and busy work that slows you down from focusing on the big picture. Well, that is where our sponsor Belay comes in. Belay is an innovative staffing solution, which offers virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media strategists for growing organizations like yours. Check it out. You can reclaim that 15 hours a week by hiring a virtual assistant to do your emails, to do your scheduling. Oh, what a dream that would be. To book travel for you when the world opens back up, to plan meetings, to even do expense reporting. That is what Belay specializes in. I love Belay. It's a great company. I wrote a story about them a few years ago about their company culture, and it is a fabulous place to work and offers wonderful services to their clients. To find out about Belay, go to Belay Solutions backslash green today. That is Belay spelled B-E-L-A-Y solutions.com backslash green and tell them that John Small from Green Entrepreneur sent you. Okay, now let's return to our interview. Speaking of the whole interstate commerce, we obviously saw the farm bill get passed under Republicans most recently, and now we have a supermajority in Congress as well as a Democratic White House. Can we expect some type of banking reform or possible federal legalization to roll out across the next four years? Or what should we look forward to in the industry? Well, that's the billion dollar question right now. I think the Democrats taking those two seats in Georgia and flipping control of the Senate was a massive deal for the prospect of federal reform. And this is, you know, irrespective of what anybody's personal politics are. The Democratic Party and Democratic Party leadership, by and large, has been much better on this issue than the Republican Party, especially over the last few years. And this has been really a shift in the last few years. We recall, you know, when Obama was elected, he had Democratic control of both houses for two years, and substantive marijuana reform was never on the table. Right? Democratic Party leadership was not there yet, but they are now. You have a, you have a vice president who was the lead sponsor of the MORE Act, the most comprehensive legalization bill in Congress. Kamala Harris you know, was the lead sponsor, is now the vice president. Chuck Schumer had sponsored his own legalization bill and had said that this is a priority. Nancy Pelosi saw it as, as, as enough of a priority to push the MORE Act through the House during the lame duck session. So. Congressional leadership is largely there on this issue. Whether or not that means we get actual legalization passed in the next year or two, I think is still very much an open question because just having majority support doesn't necessarily mean it's going to pass. And I would look at 
I would look at New, New York and New Jersey in particular as really good examples of that, where in both of those states, you have majority support amongst the Democratic Party. In fact, you have almost unanimous support amongst the Democratic Party members in both of those states, and yet they haven't been able to agree on the details of what a bill should look like. And so these bills have failed there for the last three years in each of those states, despite having unified democratic control, all of whom are in favor of the concept of legalization, those details really matter. And so that I think is where this is going to fall in the next year or two is can the Democrats agree enough on the details to be able to pass this with slim majorities in both houses? I think there's a real chance, right? I'm not ruling that out. I think there's a very real chance. But even if we aren't able to get full descheduling or something like the MORE Act, we are likely going to have other substantive reforms. You mentioned banking. I think that getting safe banking passed this year, either as a standalone or more likely added on to some larger bill, I think that is highly likely now. We may see things like 280E reform. We're likely to see things out of the Biden administration, like a return to the coal memo, other department guidance memos that can help on issues like taxes and 280E and, and federal enforcement, banking. So, you know, I think that flipping those two seats in Georgia and flipping control of the, of the Senate from the Republicans to the Democrats made it so that banking reform or something like safe banking went from being our best case scenario to arguably our worst case scenario. And that's the best situation that we've ever been in when you look at federal government. Well, you do serve as the vice chair for the NCIA, and clearly you do have some ideas on how the industry should be formulated and regulated. Let's say you had just a blank canvas for what you would like to see come out in terms of legislation related to cannabis. What would the industry look like if you just had it as a clay mold and you could shape it? Boy, that's uh, <laughs> how, how long do we have here? <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot that would go into that. But I, I think something like the MORE Act is a really good starting point. There is a lot around taxation and federal regulation that the MORE Act doesn't deal with. I think by and large, the industry should be regulated somewhat similarly to alcohol. I think it's, you know, it's a model that we're, that we're familiar with, that we're comfortable with, that'll be, you know, that'll be relatively easy to implement. I would not have the mandatory three-tier distribution model that you see in alcohol. I don't see any need for it in cannabis. I'm very much in favor of the idea of having distributors, but I'm very much opposed to the idea of them being mandatory like they are in the alcohol industry. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go that route. I think that whatever federal legalization, whatever legalization ultimately looks like, there needs to be a recognition of the communities that have been most impacted by cannabis prohibition and some mechanism to empower folks from those communities to play significant roles in the industry. I think that likely means empowering someone like the Small Business Association to provide loans and grants to small business owners from communities that have been disproportionately impacted, predominantly black and brown communities, that bore the brunt of marijuana enforcement to make sure that there's a mechanism for them to stand up businesses and be successful and be able to compete with some of the bigger businesses out there. I think that's really critically important that that be a piece of this. And thankfully, I think the Democratic Party leadership understands that and it likely will be in whatever ultimately gets done. And we need to, you know, we need to take down the you know, the walls of, of interstate commerce, as, as I've mentioned, uh, you know, we need to get to a point where, where companies can take advantage of that econ those economies in scale and be able to ship across state lines just like we are able to do in any industry. So I think, you know, alcohol is probably the base model. And then, you know, we need to address equity and we need to you know, tweak some of the things in the, in, in the alcohol model that, that, that haven't worked very well, like, like the three-tier distribution model. But by and large, I don't think there's a need for us to completely reinvent the wheel here when we have models out there that already work.
Right. And I think that we've kind of seen that a little bit in Nevada with uh, people pushing back against, you know, saying have having distributors literally pick up cannabis from the back room and having to move it to the front room and then having to pay for that privilege. When you're looking at the entirety of cannabis, obviously you're involved in so many different sectors of the industry. What would you see as the fastest growing sector in cannabis as far as, say, product lines are considered? Are you seeing a resurgence in pre-rolls and flour? Obviously, there was a drop-off in vaporization during Vapegate. Is extracts the new future for cannabis? What is the fastest growing in cannabis, and why is that, in your opinion? Well, like everything, unfortunately, in this industry, it's somewhat state-dependent. We don't have a national cannabis industry right now. We have 50 individual cannabis markets, so those trends tend to differ a bit by state based largely on what the regulations are in that state and how new the state is. We still do see in almost every state that comes online, once it becomes legal, we do still see a shift away from flour into infused products. And I think that trend will likely continue. But within that infused products category, it's quite varied. You definitely have seen a big move towards vape. You saw that come down quite a bit during the quote-unquote vape crisis, but the sales of vapes and vape cartridges have gone, have gone back up. I think what we're seeing largely is a shift towards sort of non-smokable products in general, which makes sense because we're kind of moving away from smoking in general in this country, right? Cigarette, uh, cigarette use is, is down to an all-time low. And also products that I think appeal to a older consumer base. And by older, I don't mean you know, necessarily seniors, but not... 20-year-olds. And by and large, if you're you know, somebody over the age of 30, particularly if you have kids, you know, smoking a joint or smoking a bowl isn't always the most convenient. You may not be able to do it when you're around other parents. It smells. Uh, it can smell in your house. You have to answer questions from your kids that you don't necessarily want to answer. Whereas if you can you know, take a couple bites of an edible, hit a little vape pen real quick, right, and keep that in your pocket tincture, right? These kind of things, I, I think they're just, there's a convenience factor there, I think, for consumers. And really, it is, it's, it's older consumers that are entering the market at the fastest clip, right? Younger people are already using cannabis and younger people are already easy for them to get cannabis on the illicit market. It's never been easy for, for older people, like people over people 30, 35 plus to get cannabis on the illicit market as it, as it is for, for younger people. Right? Every high school in America, every college in America has a number of cannabis dealers, but you know, not every office or work site in America does. So the older someone gets, the more disconnected they are from the typical distribution channels for cannabis in, in, the, in, in the traditional illicit market. So you're seeing more and more of them now get into the in, get into cannabis or come back to cannabis because it's legally available, and they tend to be looking for more convenience in their, in their products. I think that the next step we're going to see, the next shift we're going to see will be once public consumption becomes more available and more ubiquitous. Right now, as you know, it's very difficult for, or it's almost impossible in most states for people to be able to consume it in a lounge or you know the equivalent of a bar, right? right. It's, it's something you buy at a store and you go and you consume it elsewhere. And I think right. that's going to change consumption as well. You know, we hear every year, for example, every year I see stories out there saying this is the year that marijuana infused beverages are going to take off, and it never happens, right? Like they're, they're still a there's still a pretty, it's pretty, it's still a pretty small segment of the market. And I think sure. that, and I think that what the catalyst for when that'll actually happen is when people can go to something that feels like a bar and buy a marijuana infused drink that's 12 ounces and five milligrams and sit there and have five or six of them over the course of two or three hours, the way they would with beer and be really social while they're drinking. Because otherwise, if you're, if you go to a dispensary and you're just going to go and you're going to use it at home, that drink's not as convenient as I can take a few puffs off a vape pen or pack a bowl and I'm done in a few minutes and I'm as high as I want to be. But when you, when you mix the social factor into that and 
you mix in someone being in an environment where sitting and imbibing, right, and drinking your intoxicant feels very natural, that's when I think you're going to start to see an increase in infused beverages and products that are really made more for social consumption in a, in a social public setting. Well, and we started to see the push for uh, social use, at least here in Southern California before the pandemic. Obviously, we had OG Cannabis Cafe open up. We had several other social use lounges get approved for their licensing and attempt to open up prior to the pandemic. Do you see the pandemic as kind of holding those back indefinitely or, you know, as numbers go down and say things start to open back up, do you see a resurgence towards a push for social use? Oh, I think we'll definitely see a resurgence. I mean, I think people are dying to get back out there and live more normal lives again once this is over. And that's going to mean you know going back to bars and going back to restaurants and going back in social settings. And you know, as cannabis becomes more and more legal in more places, it's going to mean people are going to want to be able to do that socially as well. So I think that push has been somewhat on pause because of the pandemic and understandably so. And you're not, you know, nobody's going out to restaurants. People aren't going out to restaurants and bars and stuff now as it is. But I think that absolutely comes back because we, you know, we're, we're social creatures and there's lots of us that would much prefer to be able to go out and enjoy cannabis while being social with our friends than have drinks. And I don't think that changes once the pandemic ends. Well, and I do want to I do want to touch on something a little bit more personal. You've obviously been in the industry for so long and worked with so many prolific people. I have to know what, what's been your fondest memory since starting in this industry? It's hard to pick one, but boy, I'd say probably from just a pure like joy moment, it was probably being at the election night watch party for the campaign in Denver in 2012. Now, to be fair, I was not I was not really part of the campaign. Uh, I was living in Arizona at the time. So other than, you know, donating and conversation, I, I knew that the folks that were running it really well from my advocacy days, the folks from Vicente Cedarburg and, and Safer not. But I did go up there. My wife and I went up to Colorado on election night because we knew there was a chance that uh, Colorado was going to be the first place in the country to legalize. And having spent my entire career working on this issue, I really wanted to be there. And the pure joy that everybody felt at that moment and, and how many people came from around the country to Colorado to be at that party, you know, looking around and seeing, you know, seeing the likes of, of, of Ed Rosenthal, who's you know, been doing this for decades, and Steve D'Angelo and Tom Angel. I remember seeing, you know, Tom Angel had tears in his eyes when, the, uh, when this was announced. And just all these people that I had worked with for so long, and Steve Fox. Christian Cedarberg and Mason Divert and just all these people who have been doing this for so long, just able to to celebrate this massive victory, be the first place in the U.S. that legalized was was pretty amazing. I'd love to say that it was 2016 in Massachusetts when we legalized there because I was very heavily involved in that initiative. In fact, we, we ran that campaign out of my office, so it was you know was heavily involved in that for the year or so leading up to election night, and it was a wonderful victory. It just happened to come the same night that Trump was elected president, which put a little bit of a damper on the, on the election night victory part. I'm going to go with Colorado in 2012. And that's the perfect date as well. Definitely one of my favorite moments as well, because you knew at that moment it was going to be a windfall from there. I got to ask, though, being a, a consumer yourself, I'm sure everybody wants to know. What's your favorite method of consumption and what's your favorite strain? So I'm. Pretty, pretty old school on this, and I think definitely a product of my my age. I'm a bowl smoker for the most part, so I still I still like smoking flour more than uh, probably more than anything. Generally, I smoke it out of a bowl. I probably prefer joints, but I, I still find myself smoking out of a, you know just a typical glass bowl more often than not. And my all time favorite strain is, is probably Jack Herrer. I still whenever I find it, I still uh, whenever I find it out there, I still find myself going back to going back to Jack. 
just a classic great sativa strain, which are the strains I typically you know, I typically gravitate towards. Yeah, it's a perfect strain as well. One of my favorites. Got to know, you guys are so involved in so many different aspects and what's going on. What can we expect in the future from Forefront Ventures? Well, I think this is going to be a pretty important year for the industry. We've seen the you know, stock values of many of the companies rebound and, and ours included. And I think that's going to open up some new opportunities for expansion for, I think you're going to see consolidation in the industry, whether we're a part of that or not, I think still remains to be seen. But I think for us, really, what we're, what we're going to be focused on this year is exactly what we've been focused on for the last couple of years, which is really nailing low cost production at scale, like good quality products, at low cost, at scale. We are the largest producer in the state of Washington, the largest producer wholesale in the state of Washington, which is a state that you know often gets overlooked in some of these conversations, but it is arguably the most competitive market in the country other than maybe Oregon. And the reason we've been able to dominate in that market is because we can produce really good quality products at a better price point than anybody else in that market. And our thesis has been that if you can really prove yourself in these hyper-competitive markets where there's massive downward price compression and still dominate those markets and turn a profit, then you're going to be really well positioned in the much less competitive limited license markets where most of our licenses are. And so our big focus this year is taking those methods that we've honed in on in Washington to produce particularly low-cost consumer packaged goods and bring those to or other markets. So we're, we're about to start a massive build out of a, a huge facility in Illinois. We're going to be doing lots of automated production. We're in the midst of a really big expansion of our production capabilities in Massachusetts. And we're going to be launching early this year, we believe will be the most highly automated edibles production facility in the country in Southern California, where we're going to be able to produce edible products uh, and other infused products but our edible brands, our market-leading brands from Washington, we're going to be able to produce them at a price point in California that we believe will not only make us competitive with the biggest edible brands currently out on the legal market in California, but will actually be price competitive with most, if not all, of what's out there currently on the to the legacy gray market and illicit market, which, as you know, in California, that's the biggest issue right now is that the you know right. there's still a very large sort of holdover from the Prop 215 days lots of brands, lots of products that flood that market that make it difficult for the legal market to gain as much of a foothold because it's hard to produce at the same price point when you have to, when you're subject to all of the regulations that the legal businesses are subject to, that the illicit businesses are not, or the legacy businesses are not. And so our answer to that is we need to figure out how to get so hyper-efficient, and I think the answer to that is largely automation, in California where we're producing through the legal market at a price point that's better than what you can get on that legacy gray market. And I'm so really excited about that that, that project. Well, and hopefully uh, the BCC lowers the taxes a little bit too here in California. That would be my hope. <laughs> that uh, help too. <laughs> yeah. Chris Crane, Vice Chair for the National Cannabis Industry Association, as well as President and Founder for Forefront Ventures, my friend and one of the most kick-ass people in the cannabis industry. Again, thank you so much for your time and keep doing what you do for us, brother. Thanks so much, Nick. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com or check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur 
We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.